Shall we pray together before I begin tonight? Father, it is your love that's drawn us here tonight, and we want to acknowledge immediately that we just praise you for the love that you've shown towards us. Father, we thank you that you were the one who saw us in all of our need. You saw us when no one else could help us. And Father, at that time we hated you and we despised your name. And yet you and your love just came and you reached down your hand and you lifted us up. And Father, because of the wonderful work that Jesus had done for us and for the whole world in love, we became your children. We were gathered into your bosom. And Father, tonight we gather as your love children, Lord. We gather to our Father in a celebration of love tonight. Father, I pray, Lord, that this tape as it goes out will be able to minister to those, Father, who may not know quite what love is. Father, that understanding it, they may then begin to believe it, and as they believe it, might enter into the experience of it. Father, I do pray for a spirit of love upon us. Love primarily for yourself. Love for your word. Love for one another. That, Father, indeed, we should go home after a banquet of love tonight. Oh, we do rejoice in your love. We thank you for all that it means. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name, Father, that you will make my words lovely tonight. Hallelujah. That, Father, they might indeed do justice to this subject, and that we should understand indeed this wonderful facet of your character. Father, just please come, and will you speak to us tonight very clearly? In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Tonight I come through to the, I suppose, the most commonly known and perhaps least understood of the attributes of God. What I mean by that is that if you called a group of people together in Chichester or in Bognor and you said, now listen everybody, I just want you to tell me one of the attributes of God, the reaction you get from most of them is, well, what do you mean by attribute? And you'd have to explain that. And you'd have to say, well, one of the characteristics, tell me something you know about God. They would then, I think, the majority of them anyway, actually turn around and say, well, God is love. And tonight, we want to talk about this marvelous attribute of God being love. And instead of doing it in the general way that most Christians speak about it, or most non-Christians speak about it, we want to actually locate in the Bible where God speaks about love and what we mean by love. It's one thing saying God is love, but it's, the question really is, what do you mean when you say God is love, and what does that mean as far as you are concerned? So can we turn in our Bibles immediately to the book of 1 John... And remember, please, that John is the old man who used to be wheeled around from church to church. And they used to say, John, they used to say, give us a word tonight. And he used to stand up, and the only word he used to say was, brothers, sisters, love one another. And do you remember on one evening, someone said to him, oh, John, that's what you always say to us. Can't you tell us something else? And he said, listen, he said, if you would just do that, it would be all that you need. And here is the apostle of love, and he's writing on his favorite subject, by the Holy Spirit. And here we have a statement that actually declares what every non-Christian seems to know, that God is love, but they don't know why they know it. Well, how do we know it? Because it's in this verse here. 
And I want to, to read 1 John 4, verse 8, and then verse 16. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And down in verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And you see, in these two places you have three little words. God is love. And those of you who know your Bibles well will be reminded of two other passages that sound rather similar to this. You'll be reminded of a passage in John chapter 4 which says this, that God is spirit. We dealt with that very early on in this course. And you'll be reminded probably of the verse in 1 John chapter 1 which said God is light. Now added to those, you've got this one which says God is love. And you'll notice here it doesn't say that God can love or that God has the ability to love, or that God does lo love, it's much deeper than that. What it says is that God is love. Now, when you see that, those three little words, do you know what it means? It means that God is structurally love. When you say about God that God is spirit, you're actually talking about a, a structural part of him. You're saying that God really is a spiritual being. Not that he has a spirit, he is spirit. It's intrinsic within him. And here, this most marvellous of verses says this, not that God can love, not that God does love, but that God actually is love. Now, this is dynamic, if you could get a revelation of it. For what it means is this, first of all, that God is an unending supply of love. When you reach the end of God, you reach the end of love, because God is love. Well, as you can't reach the end of of God. We've seen that before, haven't we? We've seen his eternal and omnipresent and so on. When you reach the end of God, you've reached the end of love. But if God is still there, love is still there. That's the first thing. And the second thing it means is this, that whatever God does, whatever God says, has to be bound up in love. He's always moving in love, whatever he does. Because you see, he is love. And if God does something, it must be love that is doing it. What a wonderful privilege to have a God just like that. All right, now there's the statement, God is love. The question is, what do we mean by love? Oh dear, oh dear. If ever there's been a generation that's wishy-washy about its views on love, we are living in that generation now. Most people think that love is an emotion. That's what they think. Well, love, it's this thing that makes you feel slightly sick and you know I'm in love. And that's all they say. And you say, well, what is love? Well, it's just a feeling I used to get when I was a teenager. Or if uh, they're a bit more mature, it's a feeling that I have towards my old missus. That's how they describe it to you. But they don't actually say what it is. They limit it solely to an emotion. Now, the trouble is, you see, that it's the world that's preached that about love. You go to most cinemas, you know, watch television just for one evening, and somewhere along the line, you've got love of that sort. These two people gazing at one another. I love you. Oh, I just love you. And that's it. You see? And there it is. It's a gut reaction. It's something that makes them quiver from head to toe. The trouble with l that being love is this, that inherently that's very unstable indeed. You know? Do you know that type of love is something you only find on the film? You never find it in true life. 
You see, people who go into marriage with that type of love, they notice this, that once they're married, it seems to vanish. Easy come, easy go, seems to be the thing. There's that little rhyme, I think I've quoted it elsewhere, that the looks that are so amorous over wine so sweet never are so amorous over shredded wheat. <laughs> and, and some of you may know that thing. And so, so often you go to a church service and you've got these two quivering masses of humanity in front of you and you say, uh, are you in love? Oh, we are. And honestly, if that is what love is, do you know that most marriages like that end in the divorce court? Because that type of love has no stability in it, but that is what most people think love is. It's just this emotion. Those of us who are parents and Christian parents, and we know what real love is, we know that love is more than that. Oh yes, there is the emotion that's attached. I mean, whenever I'm talking to a couple who want to get married, I always have to make sure the chemistry is there. You know, they have to be in love with one another, but it's got to be something deeper than that. I'll tell you this, I really love my children. And to some of you, that might mean, oh good, he sits there and he cuddles them in. Yes, I do cuddle them in, you know, and I take them both on my lap and I give them a big hug and, you know, they're my sweetie pies and all the rest. Yes, that's lovely, that type of love. But I'll tell you something else. Sometimes it's the, the opposite side of their bodies, <laughs> their bottoms that receive my love as well. You see, the world thinks that love means that God has no standards and that he requires nothing. That's the general feeling. Well, God is love. And that means that I can do as I please and, of course, he just loves. That's it. Oh, well, yes, but he loves me. In other words, he'll just overlook anything. On the films, you see it. There's one person madly in love with this man. He couldn't care less about her. And she's saying, I don't care what you do. As long as you come back, I love you. And that's what she's saying, you know, and if he does come back, it's a disaster in the world, but it's love forevermore on the celluloid, you see? It doesn't work like that. When I love my children, when I see them disobeying my law, then I act to correct them because my law is part of my love. Do you see? In other words, there's a cutting edge in all of this. Now, this is what the world won't listen to. That type of idea that God is this type of emotional love suits the unbeliever and suits the carnal Christian very much. For the unbeliever simply says, oh, well, that's it. It doesn't matter. I'll just carry on my own way, and if he loves me, then I'll be all right. You see? And that's the message that is actually preached by, unfortunately, most people. Okay, so how are we going to define love? Having said it's an emotion, which it is, I think it has to be more solidly defined if we're going to understand it. And I think the best definition I can think of as far as love is this. Love is that which seeks the best for the object in its sights. Love seeks the best for the object that is loved. And I think that's a good definition. It sounds rather unattractive de definition at first, doesn't it? And you say, oh, was so what is this thing called love? Oh, it's that which seeks the best for the object that it's poured upon. But do you know, that's a wonderful definition, and it works. One type of love that we all know about is self-love. Would you put your hands up here if you don't love yourself? <laughs> that's the problem, isn't it? Yes? Too many of us are filled with self-love. Now, let's have a look at that definition, self-love. 
right? My self-love seeks the best for me. Yes, it does. And you'll find this, that a person who really loves themselves, they don't care what happens, as long as they're happy, as long as they're content, as long as they're blessed. And sometimes you say the trouble with them is they love themselves too much. What you mean is they're so intent upon making themselves happy, they don't care what they do to anyone else. Love seeks the best for the object that it's poured on. You see, it's true. You think of your families. You think of your wife, if you're a man. Think of your husband, if you're a woman, right? You love them. What does that mean? Surely, if it means nothing else, it means that you desire the best for them in every circumstance. Doesn't it mean that? I think it does. I think most of us, because we love our family, we would like to see our family really good. We want a really successful marriage for our children. We want our children to be happy. We want to see them grow up well. We want to see them turn into good individuals. That's what love is about. Now forget all the emotional stuff. That is down-to-earth, nitty-gritty love. That's what it's about, you see? What about love of God? It's exactly the same. If you love God, you are seeking that which pleases Him. That surely is a good definition of love. You're seeking to glorify Him. You're seeking to love Him. You're seeking in all your ways to serve Him. Surely that is a good definition of what love really is. Yes? When God loves the world, it works as well. God so loves the world. Yes, he does. Why? He seeks the best for them. That includes the unbeliever. Do you know God seeks the best for the unbeliever? That's why Timothy says he desires all men everywhere to be saved. He seeks the best for them. He seeks the best for believers. That's one of the things we're going to see tonight. Love means God seeks the best for you. Oh, it's wonderful. Okay, now there are certain types of love. Incidentally, if we love the saints, what do you do? You seek the best for them. You want them to be blessed. That's what true love is. I can say I love you, and the words just flow out of my mouth, but I'll tell you this, the acid test of that is whether I really want you blessed with everything that's within me. That's the real test of how much I love you. All right, now having defined it like that, do you see that often there's a contradiction in our loves? And we have this tension that goes on. It's normally self-love versus the rest. Have you noticed that? Oh, it's tough, you know. And we just love ourselves and we love our comfort. And Do you know, I really understand me. If everyone understood me like I understood me, you'd never be offended by anything I did or anything. I love me. I really do. Oh, I don't like me often, but I do love me. And the proof of it is the amount of time I spend pampering me in the middle. Now sometimes, unfortunately, my little uh, love affair with myself is shattered because other loves start coming in. For example, this love of God comes across it. And one evening there's a meeting on. (laughs) And there's me in the middle. And little old me says, you're tired. Oh, you deserve a rest. You've worked really hard today. Honestly, look at all the things you've done. And you've really been good today, and I think you should put your feet up. Now, the love of God comes in and says, no, I want you to love me, says God. I want you to come and learn more about me tonight. Oh, well, ah, yes, but, uh..." and there you've got God calling, and there's me calling, and somewhere in the middle, we have to make a decision, you see, and unfortunately, with most of us, God wins sometimes, we win occasionally, you see. There's a tension in all of that. Um, One of the most ugly things I 
see during my ministry is marriages where self-love is dominant. It's a very ugly thing, you know, where literally one person is so possessed with themselves and all they want from their partner is, look, there's a globe me here. Come on, come on, love me, 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 me. Your marriage actually says that you ought to love one another, you know, and, and you know, a happy marriage actually has the love of me put on one side for the love of you. That's surely a definition of a good marriage, you see? And you find that tension. You know what you ought to do because you love them, but me is crying out saying, don't forget me in the middle. And we, in our marriages, if we're mature, we have to come to the place where, quite honestly, me comes second to her, or me comes second to him. And then the most lovely thing happens. You start loving one another, and you get totally satisfied in that mutual love, which is super. Praise God. See? Um, oh, yes, we can think of all sorts of contradictions. You know, when the saints come along. Now, you know, you, this is the only evening you've got off, right? And little old me is justifying it, saying, yes, 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 it's quite right, it's quite right. And then someone rings up in need. And immediately, the love for the saints is immediately creating a tension with the love for me in the middle. And so, do you see, very often, the whole of our Christian life is spent sorting out our loves all over the place. And God hopes that the love that dominates in the end is going to be a love for himself. Now, love actually creates this tension. And this actually is the meaning of the words that Jesus speaks, very well-known words, but let's turn to them, in the Gospel of John. And chapter 15, you all know these very, very well. <clears throat> Here it is, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life, that self-love, for his friends. And you know there are degrees of loving the saints. But the greatest of all love is when finally love for me is cast on one side for love for you. The greatest love of all is when one love is laid down for the other sort of love. In every fellowship, by the way, you have two types of lovers. You've got self-lovers and saint-lovers. Those two. Self-lovers, saint-lovers. And generally you can divide a fellowship in, into their various segments like this. There's one half who all the time is thinking, well, now, are they going to meet my need? That's self-lover. They sit there, you see. And if one of their needs is not met, this fellowship is not loving. That's their definition. Really, they're worshipping at the altar of self-love, and that's it. There are others, however, and we've got a lot of them in our fellowship, who are saint lovers. And they're so busy loving everyone else, they don't really notice when they're missed out along the way. You see? And generally, you can split all Christians into those two. And some wise sit there every evening just testing other Christians, how much they love them. You see? Well, of course, if every Christian did that, we'd all be in our little blocks waiting for everyone else and feeling bitter that no one really loves us. Saint lovers actually is the way to a successful fellowship, where you get people who, quite honestly, if they got a free evening, don't sit by themselves twiddling their thumbs and wondering whether anyone loves them, but rather goes out to prove that they love someone else. You see? And greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends, for his brother, for whoever it is. And this is the love that God has called us to because this is the type of love he himself has. Now we're going to see that. Isn't it wonderful that our God has the attribute of love? Do you know, I could, I was tempted to, I'm not going to, but I could list various gods that are worshipped 
in the world today, and I could list some of their characteristics. One God that's worshipped in the world today has 105 characteristics, and love isn't named anywhere among them. Do you know most gods on the face of this planet, with a small g that is, they don't claim to be love. They're gods who are tyrants, who are literally going to drive their people into the ground. Our God is one of the very few gods who claims to be loving. No, not just having the attribute of love, but being love itself. Now, it's a wonderful thing. Remember this, and it's a point I made earlier on in this series, that when you get one characteristic of God, you've got to in include all the other characteristics as well. Now, some people think, you know, that just because God is love, everything else is second to that. I hope by this time you know that's not true. God is love, but he is also, do you remember, absolute righteousness and absolute justice, what we called holiness. And it's no good doing what the world does, which simply says, oh well, God is love, without actually saying that he is holiness as well. And holiness means there are standards to be met. There is a doctrine going around today called universalism. Universalism states this, that everyone's going to be saved in the end. Why? Well, because God is love. That's what they say. And if God is love, he can't see any of his creatures destroyed. That's the way it goes. What that says is, just because God is love, all the other characteristics of God are nullified. It's not true. You know that, don't you? Every one of the attributes still stands, and that includes holiness. And that's what we've got to see. You see, very important. How is it possible to reconcile God's love on the one hand with God's holiness on the other? Before the cross of Christ, it was totally impossible to do it. Oh, it was very difficult indeed. But it's at the cross that all of a sudden you see it. Can we just go to John chapter 3, to this well-known verse, and let's see how we reconcile these two. Those of you who were here when I spoke on holiness, you will already know this. All right, now look at verse 16. Here it is, the great evangelistic verse. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that is love according to two parts of our definition. First of all, it seeks the good of those who are on the face of this earth, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's the first thing. But secondly, do you see, it is a laying down of self. If God had been like me, I would have said, no, I'm not giving my son. I love my son too much. I'm not. Self-love would have occupied him. If Jesus had been like me, I would have said, what, leave Father's side and all the glory that's mine? Certainly not. That's what I would have said. Self-love would have dominated. But the lovely thing about God is this that he laid down that which he had a right to, because he loved you, and he loved me, and he loved the world so much. And Father was prepared to see his only beloved Son come down to this earth. And Jesus was prepared to leave all of heaven's glory and come down just because we needed saving. Do you see, that is the greatest love according to Jesus' own definition, that Jesus laid down all that he had just for us. We have received greatest love, and we received it at a time when we quite honestly were still enemies of God. Oh, it's the most wonderful news when you think of it. Do you see, when Jesus arrived on the face of this planet, it proved that God loved. It really did. 
By the way, that's not enough. Jesus then had to go through to die on the cross because God's character had to be satisfied as far as his holiness was concerned. Don't believe these people, you know, who say, ah, well, God is love, so just be good and you'll get there. Don't believe them. If that were true, do you know what Jesus would have done? He would have come to the face of this earth, okay? He would have said, now, you see, God is love, isn't he? That's why he sent me. Then he would have said to everyone, now, be good. That's what he would have said, be good. And then he would have ascended. That's what would have happened. And then the message would have been right. That's right. You know, God is love. He sent Jesus to prove it. And let's be good, and then we'll go to heaven. Because Jesus went straight to heaven and all the rest. I'll tell you something. If Jesus had done that, not one of us would have been saved. Definitely not. For Jesus then had to love us so much that he went through to the cross of Calvary, where he was spat upon by men and blasphemed upon by men. And there he was tortured on the cross and died for every one of us. And I'll tell you this, without the barbaric cross, you have no salvation at all. It's through the blood of Jesus that the love of God is made perfect for us. He not only gave his son, he gave him unto death for you. Now that is the greatest love that there is. And you see it's at the cross that you suddenly see it. Yes, Father loves you, true. Loves the whole world, but I'll tell you this, his standards have got to be met. And that's why Jesus came and why he died on the cross of Calvary. And there's no point in saying that God is love if you forget that. And you'll find that when you go through the, the scriptures, whenever you see Jesus being given, it always talks about the sacrifice because Paul always reminds us of the other attributes of God. Can we just turn to Romans chapter 5? Right, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, or I'll go a bit before that, I think. Romans chapter 5, and let's read from verse 6. I love this particular section. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Isn't that fantastic? The very people who put him to death, he died for them. And then Paul expresses the wonderment that I feel about it in the next verse. Why, he says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. I mean, if there's a really good living man, you might just die for him. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that staggering? When we hated him, when we would have been there railing at him on the cross, he willingly laid down his life for us. That's real love. This isn't just an emotional, oh yes, I love them, sort of thing. This is the cutting edge of his love. He loved you so much, and I'll tell you, it cost him something. That's real love. And I have found this in my Christian life, that whenever we're talking about real Christian love, it's a costly type of love that's involved. There's nothing easy in this at all. Oh, at first it looks easy. Yes, we have people come along, wonderful, they love the praise. Praise the Lord, wonderful. Before long you find God saying, do you really love me? And the cutting edge starts appearing. There it is. God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, 
We shall be saved from wrath through him. And do you see, straight on, after the giving of himself, in verse 9, what's mentioned? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet we find this move in the days in which we live to cut out the blood of Christ. There was an article in Buzz magazine a few months ago. Isn't it time we drop the primitive mention of the blood of Jesus Christ, said this woman? Absolutely appalling. Oh, it's primitive. It's barbaric. It's not the sacrifice of Jesus that's barbaric. It's sin that's barbaric. It's the fact that we've sinned against the Almighty God. And that's why Jesus had to come. Cut out the blood and you cut out your salvation. That's what this is saying, you see. So when we're talking about love, remember it's love plus the other attributes that come along here. All right? Fine. Now having said that, I want to look at love in some detail and see exactly what it means for every one of us. I have done a tape called Father Loves You, in which I speak about the emotional side of God's love. By the way, I do love the emotional side of God's love. I have a sofa at home, and it's got two seats in it, and I'll tell you, I was loved by God on that sofa in the most wonderful way. There were times when I really needed to know God's love, and it was sitting on one side of that sofa with God. Jesus Christ sitting on the other side, that I really learnt what it was to say sweet nothings to my Saviour and really felt his love just oozing all over me. Oh, it is wonderful. I've had some wonderful experiences in the emotion of God's love. I really have. And I've needed them, you know? I mean, I'm one of these people who didn't really know love as a child. And there's only one way, you know, to get to know love. You've got to get to know God and then spend time with him. And you can rush off to ministry, and you can do all sorts of things, but it is, you know, essential that you sit down with your lover and let him love you. Sometimes uh, it's happened to me without sitting on this sofa, you know. I remember when I was first converted, you know, and received such a baptism of love, I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, my cheeks ached. I had problems in my cheek area. I, I felt like rubbing some of these uh, athletic lotions into my cheeks because my cheeks ache so much. And I tell you, I walked around like a jackass. Do you know why? <laughs> because I was surprised by love. I didn't know there was love like that. Now, they were wonderful. I think the most wonderful thing that I experienced in emotional love was when I was at uh, Oxford one day and I was walking through the streets very late at night, you know, and I'd been to a meeting and we were had been praising the Lord, and I went round the corner in Oxford, and suddenly the love of God just hit me. I mean, it just cascaded upon me, and tears started streaming down my cheeks, and I started smiling again as I used to smile, and the sheer love of God was pouring from me. And do you know, when I was first converted, the only song I knew was, for once in my life, I've got someone who, who needs me, except I put in someone who loves me. There, you know, non-Christian song, that. I hope you're not thinking of a chorus. I didn't know any choruses. (laughs) And I ran, you know, for once in my life I've got someone who loves me, and that's it. And you know, there where I received this wonderful baptism of God's love, it was the only thing I could think of again. I ran through the streets singing at the top of my voice with tears streaming down my cheeks. For once in my life I've got someone who loves me. Now the emotional side of God's love is really wonderful. And I would recommend to you all that you spend time with God and let him be your lover. I mean, there is another worldly song that says a fine romance with no kisses. A fine romance, my love, this is. And you know, the unfortunate thing with many of us is this, we want God's love, but we won't actually sit with him and allow him to love us. 
We've got to be prepared to spend time with this one who is the lover of our soul. We must do it. This whole series, by the way, has been designed to help you know who he is, that you might be captivated by him even more. Now, if you want to know more of the emotional side of God's love, please listen to that tape on Father Loves You. But I, what I want to do tonight is something a little more down to earth. Have you ever met those people? I meet them frequently, and they say this. This is how they approach me. They say, well, Roger, I always know it's crushing what's coming. <laughs> well, Roger, they say, and one woman said this to me. She said, my God is the God of the New Testament. Have you ever met people who say that? And you immediately say, well, what do you mean your God is the God of the New Testament? Well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. And my God is the God of the New Testament. That's what they say. Now, as soon as you meet someone like that, you're speaking to a complete spiritual moron. I should tell you that. <laughs> someone who, who has very little between their ears, indeed, of spiritual content. I'm sorry to be so bold about it, but it's true. What they're suddenly saying is that God suddenly changed at the cross, you know, before he was wrath and fire and judgment. And suddenly at the cross, he became love. <laughs> Complete dramatic transformation. Next time I'll be dealing with the immutability of God, the God never changes. You can't have a God who suddenly swings like that, because if he swung like that, what's he going to be tomorrow? You see? Oh, no, no, no. It's absolutely wrong. Do you know the truth is this, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of, yes, righteousness and judgment. True. And a God of love. And the God of the New Testament is a God of righteousness and judgment and a God of love. It's just the same. And to just say, oh, the God of the New Testament is a God of love, do you know there are vast passages in the New Testament that speak of God as a God of judgment? The whole book of Revelation, for a start. You read the Gospels. It's all there. To make a simple statement like that is nonsense. So what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to go to the Old Testament to learn something about the God of love. <clears throat> this is a new way of looking at it. <clears throat> so can we turn to the book of Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy, and I want to go to chapter 4. Deuteronomy means the second statement of the law. The law was given at the, just after the Exodus. This is 40 years on, and God's stating it again. Deuteronomy. That's what it means. Now look, God of wrath and judgment, eh? Not a God of love. Well, 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 well. Look what he says, and remember, by the way, this is after 40 years of barracking. Now they have complained... They have moaned their way through the wilderness. They have whined and whinnied before God. And very few of them have shown any faith at all. And at the end of it, what does he say? Verse 35 of Deuteronomy 4. Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon earth he showed thee his great fire, and thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt." And do you see what this says? This God is a God of love who loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, if you know anything about them, you know what a God of love he has to be. I mean, fancy loving Jacob. 
You get a Jacob in the fellowship, you've got real trouble on your hands. I won't tell you whether we've got any, <laughs> but I know. It's very difficult to love a Jacob, but because I loved him, says God, not only does my love last for them, but I'm so loyal in my love, it's passed down to you as well. What a lovely thing. And what a promise, by the way, for every parent to claim for their children. Wonderful. And here they are, the unbelieving generation, right? I mean, they've seen thousands of funerals every day because of the unbelief that was in their midst. Amazing. And God still says this, I loved your father and I love you now. And I'm sticking with you. That's what he says. This is a wonderful quality of God's love. I don't know many human beings who can love when there's no response to their love. Do you know many that can do that? Oh, it is awful when you see someone who's really trying and the other person just isn't trying to love. They're not joining in. And I think most of us, you know, we've all met people who quite honestly are not receiving our love at all. And what do you do? You love them and you love them and you love them and you love them. But honestly, after a while, you say, oh, forget it, you know. Oh, boy, that's the way you're going to react. It's awful. I just can't do it. Most of us have met people like that who are non-responsive. We find that we need response in people if we're truly going to love them. But the lovely thing about God is this. He's so self-sufficient in love. He can love and love and love and love and love and love and love, even when there's no comeback to him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And here it is, and Israel is a marvellous example of it. You see? He loves them, and he loves them, and he loves them. For 2,000 years, they haven't loved him. It doesn't matter, I still love them. God so loves the world, which hates him. Most unbelievers dwell in total antagonism to God, in hatred to God. And what does he do? He hits them over the head with love every day. God does. He pours his blessing upon them. The sun still comes up. The rain still waters their garden. It wouldn't be like that if I were God. <laughs> Definitely not. There would be plague every day on the house of the unbeliever if I were God. Praise God, I'm not God. That's what we should say. You see? But God can love and love and love even though there's no response. And here he says, listen, he says, because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive nations before thee greater and mightier than thou art. And he says, my love is so great that even though you've rejected me for all this time, I still love you. Wonderful. That's something we learn about God's love. And this is Old Testament. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to go to about four verses. And we see his sovereignty again. And I love this little passage. Every one of us has got to remember this. The Lord, it says, did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all the people. And sometimes the Jews had this tendency to think, well, of course God picked the Jews. I mean, we're the tops. That's the tendency that they had. A few other nationalities tend to do that. Well, of course God's blessed Britain. I mean, God is British. That's what some people think <laughs> who live in this country. You see? And we have to be reminded of this, that God doesn't love us because we're so great. He didn't catch sight of you and say, oh, how fantastic. Oh, I just love them. He didn't say that. Oh, what a magnificent sight. I can't possibly be out with them. He didn't say that at all. He looked at you in all the horror of your sin and he decided to love you. 
Isn't that lovely? The sovereignty of his love. And we mustn't do that to other people. We mustn't say, oh, well, look at them. You know, look at them. What a pathetic sight they are. God looks at them and says, yes, and I love them, despite what they are. That's the truth we read here. Right, I didn't love you because you were so great, he says, because you lived in Bogner or anything like that. (laughs) Verse 8. Right? Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of our bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Isn't that lovely? Well, I just loved you. That's why I did it. And there's none of this you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back business. Have you noticed that? It isn't that God says, you be nice to me and I'll be nice to you, Sonny. It's nothing like it. That's the type of love we tend to have to one another. Well, if that's the way you're going to speak to me, you know, we cut off our love at that point. That's not God's love in us. That's natural love. God comes back every time with love towards you. You reject and reject. You do that which is bad. He hits, hits you back with love immediately because that's the type of love that he's got. It's a most marvellous love. And you see, Old Testament love. Praise the Lord. Let's go on. Let's go to Jeremiah. Oh, yes, the prophet of doom and woe. Yes. Jeremiah 31. And a prophet of God's love. I mean, Jeremiah is a fantastic book. He tells them, look, you're sinning against God and judgment will surely come, folks, he says. But then he says, God loves you. God hasn't finished with you. God will bring you through. That's the other side of it. There we are. Let's uh, read it. uh, Verse 3. And this is the God who never changes. It's the same type of love. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. He says, this is towards Israel. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tebrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Isn't that wonderful? There's the God of the Old Testament. Yes, everlasting love. Everlasting means it has no end, it has no beginning. It just goes on and on and on, everlasting. It has no limit, it has no ceiling. He loves them forever lovely. For 2,000 years they've been enemies of Christ and God still loves them and do you know verse 4 is going to be fulfilled. Hasn't been fulfilled yet but it's going to be. Why? Because God still loves them, see? God just doesn't switch off his love just because he's changed his plan. He doesn't do that. He keeps on loving and sometimes we think, God I'm so awful, how can you love me? And if only we'd stop and sit down, God would say, Come on, I knew what you were like when I decided to love you. And if God's decided to love you, you're going to be loved. Even if it kills you, you're going to be loved. (laughs) Praise God. That's what we learn from this. A totally uh, all-sufficient love. It's beautiful. Another passage. Let's go to Hosea, just after Daniel. And I want to quote this. It is on the tape, Father Loves You. But I must just quote it here because it's so beautiful. Hosea and chapter 11. And I'll tell you what this is. This is a father speaking about his children. Do you know, if you ever want to upset someone, you say something bad about their children. You, you just do that. 
It really hits you, doesn't it? You know, they're the apple of your eye, and what does he think he's doing, talking about them like that? It's really horrible when it happens. Do you know God's the same about his children? Oh, yes, absolutely. Look what he says. Now, this is a father reminiscing. It's nothing more nor less than that. And he's reminiscing about Israel. He's romantic at this point. Look what he, Israel! Can you imagine it? I mean, they had let him down and let him down and let him down, chased after idols and all the rest, and yet still he reminisces like this about them. Look, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Marvellous. And called him out of Egypt, my child coming home from bondage. Verse 2. The they there in verse 2 is the prophets. And the prophets called them, so they went from them, he says. They turned their backs on what my prophets were saying. They sacrificed unto Baalim, they're the false gods, and burned incense to graven images. And you can almost see the tears appearing in God's eyes at this point. And then he reminisces about them. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim also to go. Or literally, I taught Ephraim to walk, he says. And you know what it's like, you fathers, don't you? It's wonderful. And your child is just beginning to take the first movements. They haul themselves up right on the furniture and they move along and you say, hey, those bandy old legs are beginning to take a bit of the weight now. And soon you hold them by the hand and you walk them across the floor. Do you remember that? And then they learn to stand. Then you go two paces away and you say, come to daddy. <laughs> and the little chap takes one step falls flat on his face. But that's the big news when the wife comes in. He's walked. So you say, yes, wonderful. That's what he's saying. I taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is the name used in the Bible for rebellious Israel. I taught this rebellious one to walk, he says. Lovely father's heart coming out. Look at this, taking them by their arms, or literally taking them on my shoulders. That's what it is. And you know how daddies do that, don't you? You put your little boy or your little girl on your shoulders and you jog them about. I run up the stairs with mine like that, you know, and they love it. Ooh, squeals, squeals of delight. It's thrilling to them, right? My father took me to the coronation of the queen on his shoulders. Our present queen, may I say, not <laughs> Queen Victoria. And... And... Um, it was like, I don't remember a thing about it, but that's what he did. And what a lovely thing that is for me to think about, that my father actually did that. Well, that's what he's talking about here. But they knew not that I healed them. Verse 4, I drew them with the cords of a man. And do you know the cords of a man means a baby walker? It's the harness you put round this toddler who suddenly learnt he can tear in front of cars. Right? And is determined to do just that when you take him out. There it is. And what do you do? You put this restrainer on. And just as they're heading out under the lorry, the restrainer holds them firm. You see? And that's what he's saying. Now, who is this? A God of wrath and judgment? Yes, he is that. This is a God of love. You see? Now, this is our God. And it's the God of the Old Testament and the New. This is love coming out of the Old Testament. The New Testament is so full of love, we've already seen several passages. Let's go to 1 John Again, 1 John 4, 1 John and chapter 4, verse 10, lovely verse. They're all lovely verses on love. 1 John 4, verse 10, herein is love, not that we loved God. No, that's not love. Of course we should love him. Look what he's given us. He's created us. 
He gives us sunshine. He gives us rain. He gives us food. He gives us health. He gives us salvation. Of course we should love him. That's obvious. It's quite right. I mean, if we did love him, that's nothing of note. Of course you love the one who's given so much to you. But herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Oh, that is staggering love, when you think of it. I mean, most of us, you know, we love ourselves dearly, but most of us would actually say we find ourselves hard to love. Isn't that funny? We, it's, we're a mixture of the two. We don't like ourselves, but we do love ourselves, and actions speak louder than words, you know. Oh, yes, I don't like myself at all. Some people say, I don't love myself at all. And yet most of them spend all day just doing that, loving themselves. They're experts at it. They're professionals. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it, how words are easy. But look at this. He, but that he loved us, that's what real love is about. Yes, love, but notice how it follows on. Propitiation, the death of Christ on the cross. God's character of righteousness satisfied. And sent his son to the, be the propitiation for our sins. And verse 16 and we have known and believed the love that God hath towards us. I hope you have. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. There it is. You see? God loves us. It's lovely. It involves loyalty. Do you remember in the passages we read in Deuteronomy that God stuck with them? And God's love is loyal. He doesn't let you go, you know. Oh, love that will not let me go, just refuses to. No, sir. Having loved you once, I'm going to love you forever, says God. Do you think I'm going to let you go? I won't. I keep with you. And you know, as I've said on my tape called uh, The Acid Test of Our Love uh, on, in the Fellowship Life series, in one sense, our love of God can be seen clearly by our loyalty to him. When Jesus talks about love, he said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's it. In other words, do you really have my best in your mind? Do you want to see me blessed? If you do, then please, will you do that which I ask you to do and, and really love me? And then we go over to 1 John 4, verse 18. And here's another very important truth. And one we've all got to learn. We all know this is true. Look what it says. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. And what this is saying is that the opposite of love is fear. Now let's go back to our definition. Love seeks the best for the object loved. Yes. If you know that someone seeks the best for you, you don't fear. You only fear when you suspect they haven't got your best in their minds. Then the doubt comes in, then the fear comes in. Isn't it funny that if you watch a couple who are engaged and they're in love, they do things that are normally threatening things. You see them walking along, the man's got his arm round the woman's neck, right? Isn't that staggering? But because she loves him and he loves her, she's totally relaxed. If that had been anyone else, she'd have been fearful. Because someone else might throttle her like that. <laughs> yeah? That doesn't come out on the tape. But isn't that a funny thing? One person can do that to someone and they're all frightened. What are you doing that for? Another person can do it and there's no fear at all. Why? It has to do with the intention. 
right? One person has evil intent, another person has nothing but good intent. And do you see, that's what marks out these two. A little child lost in Woolworths. I haven't chosen Woolworths for any reason, but I was lost there in Kensington once, right? And I could only just see above the, the tops of the counters. A little child lost in Woolworths, do you know, he's frightened. Why? Because every person that he sees isn't his mummy. And every person is actually an enemy to him, and a potential source of, of threat to that boy or to that girl. You see? And immediately they come into fear. Then suddenly mummy appears with her wonderful long arms that can cuddle all around him. And suddenly he knows that this person has no evil intent towards him, but only love. She seeks his good. And immediately the fear vanishes. You see? If you know that we really, or that someone really has the best in mind for you, do you see, you can't be fearful. True. This affects our relationship, doesn't it? The relationships between brothers and sisters. If I know that you've only got your, the best in mind for me, right, that you really love me, I can't be fearful of what you say or what you do. I can't. But if I feel in your heart, really you're digging, there's a little evil intent there, I'll immediately say, why are they saying that? And immediately fear and doubt and other things come in. I have noticed this, by the way, the people who know I love them, I can say anything to them. Absolutely anything to them. Do you see? And they can receive it. It's hard to receive it if you fear that there's something wrong in a person. You see? Even over the work, I think that's true. Don't you? I mean, I love this work that I'm involved in and we're all involved in. Interesting. I love it. I really do. And you know, whatever I do, I may make mistakes, but the one thing you all know is that I didn't mean to harm the work. No, no, I love it too much. You all know that. Yes, you do. But if you felt I was going to damage the work, you see, I could stand up and say something plainly to the fellowship, and immediately you'd say, what's he saying that for? You know, you'd be all uptight. I've seen people try and do it, stand up, try and correct us, and immediately, it's almost as if the fellowship moves together like a, a, a solid wall against it. It's most amazing. What does it prove? It proves that they don't know what the intent in that person's heart is. Do you see? And I know that we have got to come to the place where we know what the intent in the heart is. If we know what the intent in the heart is, we'll have no fear with anyone at all. And we've got to act in a reassuring way until people do know what the intent of our heart really is. By the way, oh, how I felt for Paul. Right, can we just quickly go to Philippians and chapter 2? I've really felt for this man. This is what's behind this verse in Philippians 2. Right, verse 19. He wants to find out how they're going. You see, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. He's worried about them. Right? He's fearful about this Philippian church. He doesn't know that they're moving right. So he's got to send someone along. But the trouble is, in his day, there were people who were more interested in themselves. They wanted to put him down. So who can I send, he says. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort, relaxed, happy, relieved, when I know your state. Look at this, and I feel for Paul in this. For I have no man like-minded 
who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. What an indictment against the church. This is the early church. And Paul says, look, I know I've loved you with the solid, pure love of God. Trouble is, who can I send? If I send some, they'll take you over. They'll lead you into bondage. They'll get you in their little pyramid structure or whatever it is. That's what they'll do. But I, who can I send who will have the same love that I've got for you? He says, there's one man I know, Timothy. And what he's saying is, quite honestly, there's no other person that I could send. But I know if I send Timothy, he'll be like me to you. And he'll give a good and right report about you. It's lovely. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Okay, but God is love. And do you know something? One of the more in, most important revelations every Christian has got to have, you have got to be assured of God's intention for you. And that really is what we mean by receiving God's love. You've got to be fully persuaded that God only has the best for you in his mind. If you have a revelation of that, you know you're untouchable. You can have a bad harvest. won't touch you. You can have a difficult circumstance. You can have a very bumpy path, and every single group of Christians have bumpy paths. Right? Oh yes, they come sooner or later. You can have bumpy paths, but I tell you, if you're persuaded that God really loves you, and that means he really has your best in his mind, you can get through absolutely anything. Yes, you really can. This is why we've got to seek God for a revelation of love. This is the unmovable man, the man who is, has such a revelation of God's love, he's always got a little smile on his face no matter what he's going through. And believe you me, all of us at times go through very deep waters. Yes, but the love man, the man who knows that God has his best in his mind, is the man who will always have a smile. Thoroughly loved. The look of one who is thoroughly loved on his face. We've got to know that he's silently planning for us in love. Do you know it? Because you've got to. Every one of you. You see, I believe this, that the mental hospitals are full of Christians who, quite honestly, are not, in, are not in the revelation of God's love, but are rather in the revelation of the fear of God. And they're frightened. Some of them don't know that God knows every uh, foible and every weakness they've got. And they think, oh, if he finds out about this, I'm done for. No, you're not. Absolutely not. You were done for before he found you, but afterwards you'll never be done for. Hallelujah. It's good news. But if we don't know that he's only got our best in his mind, then we won't be in fear and we won't be able to move in relaxation. We've got to become such fountains of God's love that we don't have enough for ourselves. We've got enough to hit everyone else with as well. Some people are experts at God's love. They come in the meeting and immediately this tidal wave of love floods everywhere. Isn't that wonderful? We must all become tidal waves of God's love. Every one of us has got to be there. God so loves you, he's made sure everything is going to work out right in the end. Lovely. Isn't that what Romans 8, 28 says? For we have persuaded, aren't we? Right? We know that all things work to the good. Of course they do. Why? Because he loves us. That's why. And to those who love him, everything's going to work to the good. Oh, let's go to another verse in Romans 8 as it comes to my mind. Romans 8, 31 and 32. There's a lovely chorus, they're singing Wigan. We were singing it in the car coming, based on verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? Right, Romans 8, 
31. If God before us, who can be against us? Lovely. The chorus is lovely. If God before us, who can be against us? Glory to his name. If God before us, who can be against us? Glory to his name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, glory to his name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, glory to his name. If God be for us, who can be against us? Glory to his name. Well, what a wonderful revelation that, what, that chorus is. Tremendous. We've got to, if God's for you, then he's only got the best coming up for you. Well, if he's only got the best, who can be against that? He has to be bigger than God. There's no one bigger than God, even though some Christians make the devil bigger than God. He's not. And verse 32, look at this. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And here's the principle. When you were sinners, God gave you the, the most. Your salvation wasn't cheap, you know. It was the most expensive thing that God could give. When you were a sinner, he gave you the most. Now you're one of his children. Do you think he's going to give you less? Of course not. You'll get everything else. That's what that verse actually says. You've got to know that he's got this plan in mind for you. All right. One other point I want to make, as I'm waxing lyrical at the moment. And it's this. Another sign of love is rejoicing. Do you know that? Love always rejoices. What does it say in Luke 15? There is more rejoicing over one sinner that repents. Wonderful. Who rejoices? God rejoices. God loves and he rejoices. And whenever you love, there will be rejoicing. There's a, a scripture in Zephaniah. I know it because I ministered on it at uh, Bogner two weeks ago. Zephaniah chapter 3. And then we'll just conclude. Zephaniah, chapter 3, just before Haggai. Does that help anyone? <laughs> Zephaniah, chapter 3, and verse 17. This is a real test of love. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. Now we sing unto God, do you know he sings over you? Lovely, isn't it? God meets you when you meet him. And the competition is whether we can sing the loudest or whether heaven sings the loudest. And he's singing about you because he loves you so much. Love and rejoicing go hand in hand. And this is why praise is so important in Christian worship. Just beware, by the way, lest your praise is simply emotional or simply religious. Beware of those two things. True praise comes from a heart that is occupied with love for God. Right? When you can stand and you just love him. Right? And so the rejoicing begins to flow. Everyone else can be as dead as a dodo, but you can still praise because it's coming out of real, true motive in this. And it's a lovely test we can apply to one another. You think of a beloved brother or sister, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. I tell you, if you really love them, you get that little uplift in your heart. You rejoice over them in, with joy, don't you? You think about, oh, great. Then you think of some other brothers and sisters. 
You get the opposite. There's a slight, oh, there's a problem there, you see. Now, you've got to do two things. One, pray for them and pray for yourself that you get more love about them. You can test how much you love the work of God. Think of the work of God you're involved with. Does your heart give a little lift? If it does, you love that work. If it doesn't, oh, there's something wrong. You've got to seek God about it. Do you see? Now, there it is. There's always rejoicing. And God really rejoices over us because he's a God of love. God's always rejoicing because he's always loving. Marvellous. All right, let's just end in the normal way then. Do you remember when we talked about the Trinity, I said that we would actually see that all the attributes apply to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just have to look at the Godhead and see how much they love one another, don't we? They're totally in love with one another. They are so in love with one another, they never do anything to offend the other person. The Father's always saying, this is my Son, hear ye him. Right? Jesus is always saying, Father, I'll only do what you tell me to do. Right? I just want to glorify you. Then Jesus goes and he says, by the way, when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll only talk about Jesus. Isn't that lovely, this interrelationship of love that they have with one another? Wouldn't it be wonderful if a fellowship functioned like that? Right? You've only got the best for everyone else in your mind. And you function. I don't care what happens to me as long as they're happy. What a wonderful thing it would be. Right, where do we learn that the Father is love? Well, we don't have to turn to it. We've seen it. Many, many passages deal with this. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten, beloved son. There it is. And that's the father being talked of right there. What about the, Jesus? Jesus' love, of course, so many passages on it, giving himself. But let's go to Romans again. Romans 8 again and verse 35. Romans 8 35, and this shows how cast iron is our salvation. Right? God's not going to let you go. It's asked a question here. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from his love? Nothing can, is the answer to that. Was your tribulation? No. Distress? No. You may suffer both of those. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? Sword? No. We're killed all day long? No. You name it? No. What? Those Christians on the road? No, sir. Not going to separate you from the love of God. They'll try, but no. Those non-Christians? No. The job? No. Nothing is going to separate you from his love. Now the love of Christ. Now there we are. Christ is love in this particular passage. What about the Holy Spirit being love? Oh, lovely verse this. In Romans again, Romans 5, verse 5. Romans 5 and verse 5. And hope, it's talking about uh, we glory in tribulations, don't we, brothers and sisters? Yes, every Christian will get them sooner or later. Right? We know that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. And it's jolly hard going through it, but don't you worry, because hope maketh not ashamed. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And when the Holy Ghost hits you, the love of God hits you, because they're one and the same. And you can get through all these things if you know his love. That's why you've got to be filled with the Spirit to get through the daily walk as a Christian. And don't neglect it. See? Right. There they are. 
So what does this mean for the Christian and for the non-Christian? Now these are very simple, right, today. What, first of all, the fact that God is love means for me and means for you that we can be totally secure. You don't have to worry at all, right? God has silently planning for you in love and the best is yet to come for you. You can be absolutely certain of that. So that's wonderful security. You don't have to fear death. Death's included in the package. Lovely. You don't have to fear judgment. There's no judgment for those in Christ Jesus. Oh, your works will be judged, but that's not you. Right? They're in the sack by the side of you, but it's not you. You don't have to fear a thing. You don't have to say, oh, but Father, how can I live in eternity knowing what I know about me? Father says, you forget about that. I've taken care of everything. The slate is now wiped clean. Right? God has rubbed it off, and he doesn't know what you're talking about anymore. It's good news for us. So the first thing is, we can be secure. The second thing is this, knowing that God is love should spur us on to love one another. That's what love should mean for every one of us. 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's it. It should spur you on to love as you've never loved before. What does it mean for the unbeliever? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that the days in which he lives now are days of grace. For God has put off judgment so that, certain, that many can be saved in this time. And the fact that he's put off that judgment, and really he should have judged just after the cross of Christ, but the fact that he's put off that judgment is a sign of his love. Not for the unbeliever to relax, but for the unbeliever to think and then to repent. Remember what the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. It doesn't say tomorrow is. And the day is coming when tomorrow will be the day of judgment. Therefore, today is the day to receive Christ as Savior. And the second thing it means must be this, the same as the Christian, really. The knowledge that God is love should provoke the non-Christian to want to love God back. And this really is a salvation appeal. What we must do as Christians is make sure that we are so filled with the love of God that the love in us seeps through into them until finally they can't resist. You just see what Jesus has done on the cross, and I'll tell you, it makes you crumple. And suddenly, you respond again to that love. Every non-Christian should, some, at some time in their lives, meet the fullness of the fact that God is love. How is he going to do it? I'll tell you how, through us. And therefore, we have to make sure that we have a revelation of God's love ourselves, and that we really allow it to flow from every one of us. God bless you all. And I pray that you will seek God as soon as possible and ask him to give you a revelation of his love. Next time, we're on, for me, a very exciting subject, one I love. There are certain attributes I love a great deal. And next time, it's immutability, the fact that God never changes. And you'll see how it ties in with love and all the other attributes in a most wonderful way. And the revelation of next time will set your feet a tapping from here to eternity. <laughs> Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you for your love to us tonight. And Father, I ask that these words may become flesh in all of our experience. Father, I pray that our fellowship will be noted for its love. Father, I thank you that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and said, Concerning brotherly love, I have nothing to teach you, for you are taught of God how to love one another. 
Father, we invite you tonight to come and teach us how to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen.